I want to make you happy. I live for that. All right, uh, quiz questions. Two people who die. Antigonus and Mamilius, good. And you all knew how to spell both, right? <coughs> Did anyone put uh, any other answers? The queen, sort of. Okay, Hermione, Her Hermione counts. So if you said Hermione, um, even though it's perverse that you would get full credit for saying Hermione because it might indicate that you'd only read the first half of the play. Uh, nevertheless, Truth is more important than, um, than uh, testing. So you would get full credit. Anyone else? All right, not bad. Did you put that? No. <laughs> okay, anybody else? Does the bear survive? We believe so. Um, you know, it is a bull market right now, but... The bears always survive. Um, anybody else? Shakespeare. Is that what you put? No, Good. <laughs> um, last and final possibility is we know that um, Polixenius' wife seems to be alive at the beginning, but she's, there's no sign of her at the end. Um, and it seems pretty clear that by the end she's dead. Does she die? Well, no. Um, because she's not a character, she's just a character present at the beginning but not at the end. Um, and that's partly a way of saying that, or partly a, a way of asking a philosophical question about what an event in a fiction is. That is, if a character is alive at the beginning but not around at the end, and if one were to ask where that character is, the only answer we could give is, oh, she must be dead. Um, the question, does she die, becomes a very difficult question to ask because it would be a fictional, it's a fictional non-event. On the other hand, I think it's relevant to The Winter's Tale because Hermione does die, but she's alive at the end. And it, there's a kind of subliminal or mental or unconscious accounting that the play may be involved with um, in which the... Um, fact that Hermione is alive at the end when she has died in the middle is balanced off by the fact that another queen who is alive at the beginning is dead at the end, even though she's not someone that we are at all aware of and not someone who at all appears on stage. Um, what makes me say that Hermione is dead in the middle? Well, for one thing, the answer to question number three, which is um, who has a spirit appear to him? Antigonus. And who is that spirit? And what does Hermione tell Antigonus in the dream? Whoa, nice. And what, do, what does Paulina say to Hermione at the end about who's been found? She says, um, descend, good lady, our Perdida is found. That is, she uses Perdida's name, and it's a name that Hermione knows. But Perdida was only named after she separated from Hermione and Paulina. 
Um, there's no reason that Hermione and Paulina would refer to the lost daughter by that name. Obviously, the meaning of the name is the lost girl. Um, or if it's not obvious, now you know. The meaning of the name is the lost girl. Um, but nevertheless, using it, using that name as a name, and a name which Hermione is expected to know, can only work if Hermione does know the name of her daughter, and she does, but she does as a spirit. And since she's a spirit, she must have died. So part of what I'm saying here, just about fictional events, part of the um, radical willingness of Shakespeare um, not to worry about what Emerson will call a foolish consistency, famous statement of Emerson's, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Um, you can't make the winter's tale consistent. Um, and Shakespeare has no interest in making it consistent. You want consistency, go to real life. Um, we get enough consistency in our lives as it is. Um, things that we've done, we've always done. But in the winter's tale, um, what you get instead is a kind of chaining together of events where the previous event makes the next event um, coherent and understandable and possible, but you don't have to worry about whether events two or three levels back are consistent with what's going on now. This is simply a fact about storytelling. Um, especially dramatic storytelling, storytelling on stage or storytelling on screen, where people can't go back and check, where um, the fact that there's an inconsistency in the plot isn't something that you can notice and check on while you're watching the play. We can check on it reading the play, but Shakespeare isn't writing to be read. He's writing to be performed. Um, we didn't talk about this, but this is true of all plays. You can always find these kinds of inconsistencies. And to take one example, um, and one that I hope you'll find ridiculous, but the whole point is that it's ridiculous, is that Hamlet begins in the middle of the winter. Um, it's incredibly cold, it's incredibly dark, it's really awful, it's probably January or February. Um, certainly um, somewhere around that time of year because um, Marcellus talks about that um, in that um, in that season wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, the bird of morning singeth all night long. Um, however, barely two months before, nay, not so much as two, Claudius is lying around in his garden taking naps. Um, what? Hamlet Sr., yes, excuse me. No, that's a very interesting slip. It just shows. Um, it, it's more valuable than, than a history of lectures, as, as Polonius might almost say. Um, Hamlet Sr. is lying around taking naps in his garden um, in the sunlight with snakes crawling around him. Um, so that year is going by really fast. It seems to be that they live a three-month year in Denmark, or a four-month year. Um, so you can't really make um, the season and the time consistent in Hamlet. Has anyone in history ever noticed that? Well, duh, um, and I'm not the first, but probably um, I may be the second. Um, that is, uh, John Sutherland has a little article on this, um, and I thought, huh, that's interesting. Um, and uh, it just doesn't matter. All that matters is he was alive, 
Now it's winter, and he's dead. And when he was alive, it was summer. Um, and the two months part, that's a different part of the play. Um, those are in different speeches and in different scenes. And no one is, no sane person is going to produce a timeline um, in a play which isn't asking for a timeline. Um, the same is true, by the way, of the Odyssey. If you do a timeline of the Odyssey, it's actually stunningly consistent, but not entirely so. Telemachus seems to be 20 years old for about 15 years. Um, and that's the one part of the Odyssey that doesn't work as far as consistency goes. And the Odyssey really is stunningly consistent. So by the time Shakespeare gets to the Winter's Tale, um, not, he's totally learned having written these plays over the course of 16 years, that um, roughing out a backstory and making sure that the backstory is consistent with the details of the story that he's going to tell is not needed because audiences don't do that. They only, um, they only pay attention to as much backstory as they need moment to moment. They don't need backstory roughed out for the whole thing. So the fact that Hermione dies is confirmed a couple of um, subtle but standard dramatic ways. Shakespeare doesn't want you thinking that she might not be dead. And there are various ways that you can make sure that you can communicate. This is all craft. There are various ways by way of craft that you can communicate that a character is dead. If you go to page 2920, which is Act 3, Scene 2, um, line um, 147, let's say, or 146, um, the Norton is pretty good. Uh, let's have another quiz. She didn't take her stuff. She's coming back. Um, the Norton is pretty good. Um, at not spazzing the stage direction here the way most um, editions of Shakespeare do. If I were editing The Winter's Tale, I would either not put the stage direction there at all, because as you know, we can get most Shakespearean stage directions from the lines that follow, um, and you don't really need um, the, um, this, this specification for readers, especially people reading The Winter's Tale, who it's not the first Shakespeare play you read. Um, or, more radically, the stage direction that I would put in is Hermione dies, or Hermione falls down dead, because that's what happens on stage. Um, you can say she's faking it, and I'll say, well, of course she's faking it, she's an actor. Um, the boy playing her is faking it. They do but jest, poison in jest. No offense in the world. Um, but if you want the experience, or the closest you can get to the experience of watching the play by reading it, then you should have a stage direction that tells you what the audience is seeing. She falls dead. She dies. Um, Hermione falls to the ground is okay. The signet says something like, Hermione falls into a swoon. Hermione faints. Um, and any reader is going to say, oh, yay, she's not dead. Um, and that would just be wrong. Is your hand up? No. Okay. Um, however, then what Shakespeare does to make sure you know she's dead is Paulina makes a statement. This news is mortal to the queen. Look down and see what death is doing. 
And we are thinking to ourselves, as we do when we bargain with um, works that we're reading, you know that experience of thinking that the hero is going to be alive or that it's going to turn out um, that Dumbledore isn't really dead? Um, but now there's only like two pages left and it's going to be pretty hard even for J.K. Rowling, who is not a writer with very great economy of means, um, to make it plausible that Dumbledore is not dead. Um, sorry, guys, but if you don't know that. Um, and then you're like down to one page and is she serious that there are not going to be any sequels to this? Um, and then, uh-oh, Harry's 30 years later and Dumbledore is still dead. Um, it's not going to happen that Dumbledore is going to survive. So you know that moment where you start worrying that your wish isn't going to be granted. And that's a literary experience. The, that is, we read works where ambiguous things happen and where we think, well, it may be the case that um, people think that she's dead, but she isn't. People think that Buckbeak has been executed, but I'm really hoping that he hasn't um, been. And if you're at all a sophisticated reader, um, what will happen if you're at all sophisticated um, is you'll start noticing that, that characters haven't actually been described as dead um, by the novel, um, that what sounds like they might have died, what plausibly looks like their death, um, there could be a way out that the character, is, that the novelist, and we're talking about novels here because we're talking about reading, that the novelist is giving you. Um, if you saw Misery or read Misery, you'll know that the Kathy Bates character in Misery, what really angers her is the way those, have people seen it? Um, so she watches Sunday morning serials and the car goes off the cliff and the door is closed and then how are the people going to survive? How is our heroine who's locked in this car going to survive? And then she gets really PO'd because the next week it picks up from just where she saw it happening except now the car door opens before the car rolls off the cliff and the character rolls out um, and she's safe. And uh, the Kathy Bates character says that's just wrong. Um, you can't do that, that's cheating. Um, so basically what happens if you're at all sophisticated and you care about a character is you assume that the novel or the writer isn't going to cheat, um, but you're looking for loopholes which are not the same thing as cheating. So you've all had that experience of looking for loopholes? Um, like especially in Harry Potter, oh no, can it really be the case? that um, Harry is being such a jerk. Um, oh no, can it really be the case that, um, the answer always is yes, by the way. But, um, but we look for um, moments which also make us feel good about ourselves. When we see a way that the book isn't cheating, that the story isn't cheating, but is making a loophole possible. We like moments like that. Um, a movie like The Sixth Sense, which I think is very close to a, mo to a moment like this, um, does that really well. That is, um, does, I, I won't give the spoiler, but there's a scene in The Sixth Sense, probably the best single scene in the movie, um, where, it, where something seems obviously established beyond the shadow of a doubt. Um, and then it turns out we misunderstood that scene um, at the end of the movie, we get a flashback to that scene and see that we totally misunderstood what had happened in that scene. 
So the movie doesn't cheat. And what Shemalian is saying at the end is, look, I'm not cheating. You may think that I cheated, but I really didn't. Look, here are those scenes again. Now that you know what happened, look, I didn't cheat, but I did leave myself a loophole. I had you interpret one thing that actually happened wrongly. And the true interpretation is the one that you now get. Um, I'll give you another example. This is a spoiler, but it's not that big a spoiler. In The Conversation, the uh, Francis Ford Coppola movie starring Gene Hackman, um, he does some voice amplification, and he hears two people whom he's being paid to follow. He's a spy who's, he's, he's a, he bugs people, I mean in a technical sense. Um, and he hears um, the, the daughter say to um, her boyfriend, he'd kill us if he had the chance. And then he realizes that the guy who, is, who um, has paid him to follow them is trying to figure out how to kill them. And he gets really appalled and he lets them know and then the guy who's paid him is murdered. And then he re-listens to the um, tape. God, you guys have never been so interested. This is fascinating. Um, he re-listens to the tape, and then he realizes that what they've actually said is he'd kill us if he had the chance. Um, and so what's happened is he's misheard the line and misinterpreted. Unfortunately, that movie cheats because the line is actually said twice. It's recorded twice. Once as he'd kill us if he had the chance, and the other as he'd kill us if he had the chance. And that's cheating, but um, Coppola assumed, like Shakespeare, that you wouldn't quite get, you wouldn't be able to buy a DVD and compare the two versions because the movie was made in 1972. Um, that is something like what Shakespeare is doing here. He is cheating, but he's using all his effort um, at this point to make it look, he's using your desire for a loophole and combining that with literary convention to prevent you from thinking that there actually is a loophole there. So the convention is um, Hermione dies or falls to the ground or whatever, um, Leontes, how now there, Paulina, the news is mortal to the queen, look down and see what death is doing. Um, and what we're thinking to ourselves is, well, Paulina says so, but we hope that it isn't true. Leontes then replies, take her hence, her heart is but o'ercharged, she will recover, and then she's taken off stage. And that's the moment of disaster, that Leontes... Paulina says she's dead. Leontes says, no, I think she'll recover. Just take her hands and try and get her to recover. That's the moment of disaster. Because as soon as Leontes expresses the loophole that we're hoping for, that closes that loophole because it's the, it's the nature of narrative loopholes not to be announced. That is, you're not supposed to see the loophole. And then later it's supposed to come, but at the point of the, uh, where you're hoping that it's there, one way that you can continue in that hope is if the loophole isn't shown to you. If someone says, I bet that gun isn't loaded, then you know it's loaded. If, if the villain is holding a gun on the hero, um, and the hero says, ha, I bet that gun isn't loaded. That was a wrong thing, narratively, for the hero to say. Because what's the villain going to do immediately? Shoot the closet next door and then bring the gun back on the hero. And you say, whoops, that part didn't work. Um, 
So that, but that standard narrative device, just it's an important thing to know about how narratives work. Um, again, the a, a way that you'll know this, you know, just in any Oceans movie, Oceans 11, Oceans 12, Oceans N plus one, um, <laughs> if you know what the plan is, the plan isn't going to work. If you don't know what the plan is, it will work. That's how plans work in movies. If you know what the plan is, then it's not gonna work. If you don't know what it is, it will work. Standard fact about movies. You know, or a little bit of a spoiler alert, if you watch Duplicity, um, and you're, you know at all how movies work, you know what's gonna happen. Why? Because we know what the plan is. And if we know what the plan is, uh-uh. Duplicity is actually pretty smart about that. That is, it makes you think you know what the plan is, and then it turns out there's another plan behind that plan. But once you learn all the levels of plans behind plans behind plans in duplicity, then it's not going to work. So your assignment for the exam also is to watch, well, there is no exam. But if there were, it would be to watch duplicity. In lieu of an exam, watch duplicity. Um, so Hermione dies. Then that's confirmed on the next page. A lord says, um, or, or um, I, I really hope she's not dead. This is at line 200. The higher powers forbid, says one of the lords. And Paulina says, I say she's dead. I'll swear it. If word nor oath prevail not, go and see. If you can bring tincture or luster in her lip, her eye, heat outwardly or breath within, I'll serve you as I would do the gods. But oh, thou tyrant. Now she turns to Leontes and uses that word he hates, the word tyrant. Um, and it's, it's um, again, I'm only going to mention this in passing, but it's important to see how much he hates it. That one saving fact about him is that he does not want to be a tyrant, whereas real tyrants don't care if they're considered tyrants. For him, it actually matters throughout that he not be considered a tyrant. But again, what Paulina has done here in saying not only will I swear it, but go see if she's dead, um, then two things can happen. One is they can say, okay, we will go see. And then the audience will think, oh, she probably has the kind of drug that Friar Lawrence had in Romeo and Juliet, and she looks dead but isn't. That's okay then. Um, but if her saying, go, go and see, and they don't go and see, if all it takes to convince them that she's dead is Paulina saying, go and see. That is, if, the, if Paulina says, I have proof, and then the proof isn't actually examined, that actually in narrative is confirming that the proof is right, that the proof isn't faked. When proof is faked, you have to see the fakery. You have to see how it's faked. But when the proof isn't faked, all you have to know is that there is proof, and then the story can go on. So again, what the narrative is saying is, Paulina, she's dead, and Paulina is the person who knows the truth in this play. Um, Leontes, no, 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 she just fainted. Conclusion, Paulina is dead. Then, a lord says, no, 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 I'm sure she... Paulina, it's either too much or too little coffee, I'm not sure which. Um, I hate that experience of not being sure which either. Um, Paulina, who's the voice of truth, says no, she is dead. Um, maybe she's lying, but as soon as Leontes says, 
oh no, she's just fainted, um, then we know there's no way that this play is going to prove Leontes right and Paulina wrong. No way at all. Then the Lord says, God forbid that she's dead. And Paulina says, come look, you'll see. Um, no way she's alive. You can, t you can check her own body out. And as soon as that happens, the fact that they don't means that our last gasp hope that there was a trick here and that Paulina, that we'll see the trick, we'll see Hermione seeming to be dead um, and everyone thinking she's dead and Paulina kind of um, being satisfied with this great trick. We don't get that scene that we would have wanted to get. So that's a second narrative indication. It's not that the audience is supposed to be thinking this. It's not that we're supposed to be thinking, oh dear, I was hoping there was a trick there, but now Paulina isn't bringing them out to see her trick. It's rather that a narrative possibility, a possible narrative pathway has been closed off. We're looking around for escape routes, and this escape route which was the only one we could see has been closed off. And if that's not enough, the fact that at the end of this, the, the winter period of time in the play, the ghost of Hermione appears to Antigonus and tells him what to do is, confer is definitely confirmatory. And if you look at that moment, um, which is the next page, 29-23, Act 3, Scene 3, line um, 15. Um, Antigonus talks to Perdita. What makes Antigonus good is that he doesn't care whether this child is a bastard or not. He cares only about the child. What makes him bad is that he doesn't believe Hermione. But now he says, come poor babe, I have heard but not believed the spirits of the dead may walk again, if such thing be. Thy mother appeared to me last night, for ne'er was dream so like a waking. To me comes a creature, sometimes her head on one side, some another. I never saw a vessel of like sorrow, so filled and so becoming. In pure white robes, like very sanctity, she did approach my cabin where I lay, thrice bowed before me and gasping to begin some speech. Her eyes became two spouts. The fury spent anon did this break from her good Antigonus, since fate against thy better disposition hath made thy person for the thrower out of my poor babe, according to thine oath, places remote enough for in Bohemia. So she's sending Perdita explicitly to Bohemia. There weep and leave it crying. And for the babe is counted lost forever. Perdida, I prithee call it, for this ungentle business put on thee by my lord, thou ne'er shalt see thy wife Paulina more. And so with shrieks she melted into air. Affrighted much, I did in time collect myself and thought this was so and no slumber. Dreams are toys, yet for this once, yea, superstitiously I will be squared by this. I do believe Hermione hath suffered death and that Apollo would this being indeed the issue of King Polixenes, it should here be laid either for life or death upon the earth of its right father. Blossom, speed thee well. Now, notice that everything, here we do get loopholes. That is, he misinterprets some of what's just happened. Namely, he believes that the reason that Hermione has come to him is because Polixenes is Perdita's father. Hermione doesn't say, 
um, something like, um, good Antigonus, since fate against thy better disposition hath made thy person for the thrower out of my poor babe, who was indeed the daughter of Leontes. She doesn't say that. And Antigonus therefore can believe, but wrongly, and it's explicit that he's able to believe this, but it's wrong, that um, Perdita is Polixenes' daughter. Um, but what the spirit of Hermione says to him is true. Perdita does get named Perdita, and Hermione and Paulina will know it. We will forget how they know it, which could only be if Hermione had been dead, if Hermione had been a spirit haunting Antigonus's dream. That's the only way they could know it, but after the immensely long Act Four, there's no way we're going to remember how we know her name or how anyone knows her name. All we'll remember is her name, and that's what matters. The moment of naming and the name thus endowed are separated in our minds. We don't remember any longer how we know her name, and that's all to the good. That's the psychological time of watching a play. Nevertheless, we also know, perhaps not knowing how we know it, that Hermione is dead. How do we know it? That's what I've just taken you through. All the moments where we know, where the play is confirming with all the sophistication of narrative conveying of information that Hermione is dead. We know that because Shakespeare has told it to us every possible way that it can be told on stage. There's no other possible way that it can be told on stage. The, or the only other possible way is if they actually go to Hermione's body and Paulina says, see, she's dead. And Leontes says, oh, that's terrible. I think I'll burn her body with this gasoline and match I have with me um, in order to um, show how sorrowful I am. Um, other, and then we'd still be looking for a way out. Um, if he did that. Um, but he doesn't do that. Um, and we are given her death with as much assurance as any death we've ever gotten in Shakespeare. No character has died more than this. In fact, Cordelia dies in much the same way, with Lear saying, oh, look, she's still alive. Look, look there, look her lips, look there, look there. And the fact that Lear is saying it means she's dead. Um, Freud tells a little story in his essay, Negation. Just, it's just worth thinking of because it's just Freud, who really knew Shakespeare well, um, tells this little story about, he says that um, in those more naive times, that sometimes when you're analyzing someone, um, the way you can figure out what's really on their minds when they tell you what their dream is, is through a little trick. And he says, a little trick is we'll say, so who is the last, what's the last thing that could possibly have been? What do you think it definitely wasn't? And he says, for example, I had a person the other day um, who dreamt that a monstrous woman was trying to kill him. And I said to him, and who do you think that monstrous woman could not possibly have been? And he laughed and said, oh, well, my mother. Um, and then Freud simply writes the sentence, so it was his mother. Um, <laughs> So basically, you can say the same thing about deaths in Shakespeare. Um, a, that they're mother, 
which they are in Shakespeare, but we don't have to go down that road right now. Um, nevertheless, what, just since we are down that road, inevitably, what Freud says about the end of King Lear is, is, is that it's actually an example of that, that the stage direction enter Lear with Cordelia dead in his arms is really psychoanalytically what Shakespeare um, in the depths of his unconscious is thinking is enter Cordelia with Lear dead in her arms because Cordelia is death and she has the dead King Lear in her arms. Um, I'm not going to explain how he gets to that reading right now, but it's a powerful one. Um, it's actually in his essay on The Merchant of Venice. Um, the essay called The Theme of the Three Caskets. It's on, it's on the web. You should, it's three pages long. It's great. The Theme of the Three Caskets. Um, why three caskets, why three daughters is the question um, that he's answering there. And the answer to that, as always in Freud, is either sex or death. In this case, it's death. Um, so, however, what we can say about the end of King Lear is Lear says, look, she might be alive, so she's dead. Um, if someone guesses something that they don't know, but that they hope, if, there's wish, if anyone expresses wishful thinking in narrative, the expression of wishful thinking is the confirmation that it's wrong. Maybe there isn't a ghost in this creepy house that we're moving into. Oh, I don't believe in ghosts, do you? Oh no, I'm not gonna worry that this house is haunted. So the house is haunted. Um, that's, that's the most basic literary, um, uh, the most basic literary uh, structure. So, here we have Hermione dying. That's all I want to insist on. Um, and we go from knowing how she's dead, or knowing how we know she's dead, to only knowing that she's dead. That's what Shakespeare is also depending on. That the details of plot get forgotten as the specious present moves forward in the course of a play. Um, as short-term memory, as the window of short-term memory moves forward. Facts get established, but the details of how they get established we forget. Yeah? This is really a, sort of tangential, but was the existence of eidetic memory known in Shakespeare's day? By eidetic memory you mean pictures? Sure. Sort of, yeah. yeah, yeah. People, um, people could People knew that some people were very good at picturing things. Um, why it? Oh, so the question is. I, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I, having an idea Probably. Um, well, it's there's some doubt as to whether anyone actually has total recall. But probably, I mean, sure, there were people who had who had. Um, there were there were savants since the beginning of time. Um, and did Shakespeare know them? Sure. What did he care to write for them? No. <laughs> Um, was he a savant? I don't know, actually. That would be an interesting question. Um, I mean, his verbal memory was extraordinary. Um, Harold Bloom claims to have eidetic memory and seems to have. Um, and uh, um, it's hard to think that Shakespeare didn't have as good a verbal memory as Harold Bloom. So that's my only evidence. Um, but Harold Bloom's verbal memory is, is pretty astonishing. Um, but it may be that you can't actually be, um, well, in fact, it's Bloom's theory, which is possibly slightly self, 
um, pleasing, um, that you can't actually be a great writer if your memory's too good. Um, because then all you'll do is remember instead of composing. Um, and that is Bloom's theory of the anxiety of influence. Um, anyhow, it is our last class and there's a lot to do. Um, but let's get back to um, this. Go back a little bit earlier. Um, again, this is the last thing I'm gonna say about technique here in this course, but it's an important thing to see about technique. Um, go to, um, and, and the technique here is, I mean, since you asked about eidetic memory, the technique here really is um, a craft technique that tells you something about human psychology by telling you something that Shakespeare discovered about human psychology. What do I mean by this? Again, an easy version of this is there's a whole lot, and it's actually now a little bit of an industry, of um, figuring out facts about human psychology in the mode of experimental psychology by looking at what artistic techniques work for people. Um, you can learn a lot about the psychology of perception by looking at artistic technique. The most obvious version of this is what's sometimes called persistence of vision. The fact that you can watch 16 photographs in a row and think you're seeing motion um, when the photographs are similar to each other but not identical to each other, that says something about the psychology of perception. Um, so the fact that movies work is psychological, should be interesting to someone who is a psychologist. Um, artworks in general will tell you a lot about the psychology of perception. Um, con conversely, very good artists have an intuitive sense, probably that they've learned over long experience, but internalized, of psychology of perception. Um, here's the case in point. Um, the oracle comes in, this is Act 3, Scene 2, line 117. Um, Hermione, just before the oracle comes in, has an interesting bit of information about herself. The emperor of Russia was my father. Oh, that he were alive and here beholding his daughter's trial. No one, by the way, put the emperor of Russia down as a dead person. Okay. Oh, that he were alive and here beholding his daughter's trial, that he did but see the flatness of my misery, yet with eyes of pity, not revenge. That word flatness there, by the way, is fantastic. Um, Cleomenes and Dion come in. Um, and they swear that they're going to tell, um, that they haven't looked at what the oracle had to say, um, swear that since then you have not dared to break the holy seal nor read the secrets in it. So now what we have is the significant ritual scene. <coughs> this scene is usually, the Winter's Tale is a hard play to do, but this is usually a, a really, if it's at all well directed, it's a very striking scene. Um, all this we swear. Can someone get the door? Um, someone lets their class out half an hour early every Tuesday and Friday. Um, I know, it sounds good, doesn't it? Tough. Um, all this we swear, Leontes, break up the seals and read. And the officer reads. Hermione is chaste. Polixenes, blameless. Camillo, a true subject. Leontes, oh, by the way, um, who does Polina marry? at the end? Okay, good. Um, who do you think is doubled in this play? We talked about doubling. Why am I asking this right now? Antigonus is dead. Paulina is, oh, I'm so sad you're all happy, but I alone um, don't have a partner. 
and then um, because Antigonus is dead, my husband is dead because of you, and now I'm alone, and you can't do anything about that. And then Leontes says, sure I can, marry Camilla. Um, so now why am I asking the question? What actor might be playing, what other role might the actor playing Camillo have played? Whoa, yeah, nice, good, okay. Um, uh, Camillo, a true subject, Leontes, a jealous tyrant. Uh-oh, he actually is a tyrant. His innocent babe truly begotten, and the king shall live without an heir if that which is lost be not found. Um, a grad student who's writing a dissertation on The Winter's Tale pointed out to me, um, I should just say, um, Brian Chalk pointed out to me, um, that there's a pun in the word heir there, because later there's going to be an heir that comes from the statue of Hermione. Air, A-I-R. Um, so, um, air and air, someone who will, um, who represents your life by being alive, and the air itself, which represents the fact that you're alive. Um, those are being connected here. Anyhow, the king shall live without an heir if that which is lost be not found. So, great news. Now, blessed be the great Apollo. Praised, says Hermione, Leontes, hast thou read the truth? Hast thou read truth? He doesn't know what to do. This is at least the second time when his will is puzzled. I, my lord, even so as it is here set down. And then, shocking, what looked like a happy ending is we're suddenly shocked by. There is no truth at all in the oracle. The sessions shall proceed. This is mere falsehood. And that's a shocking moment of suspension. However, there's something to notice here psychologically that doesn't quite make sense rationally. That is, um, a, a, someone with Asperger's would already be puzzled if they were reading this with pure rationality. Um, what the officer has read is, the king shall live without an heir if that which is lost be not found, which means Mamilius will die. That's what that part of what the oracle is saying means. You know, Mamilius, how he's sick, how he's um, uh, worried about his mother and has taken ill and his, and his, his um, people are fearing for his life. Leontes, oh no, he's fine, he'll be fine. Um, if Leontes says so, it ain't so. Um, the oracle has just said, Mamilius will die. But no one has taken that in yet because their response is now, blessed be the great Apollo, and even Hermione's response is praised. Yes? Um, I'm really puzzled by the part about Camilla Yeah? Um, because he doesn't strike me as a true subject. Um, it seems to be kind of a double agent to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. so well, yeah, okay. What the artistic um, technique is of implanting that piece about Camilla in your things that we as Okay, nice. Um, good question, and um, the answer I'm going to give you is, the, is that, it's not, that it's craft technique rather than artistic technique. That is that what we're getting here is a series of refutations from Apollo himself, because the Delphic Oracle is the oracle for Apollo, a series of refutations from Apollo himself of everything that Leontes believes. Those, those refutations are, are tweet length. Um, 
and so and which is part of their power. That is, you have all this poetry, but then the truth can be said um, in in um, independent clauses of three or four words. Um, now you're right. Camillo is a somewhat iffy character. Somewhat iffy. Um, he betrays both Polixenes and Florizel. Um, why? Because he wants to get back home. On the other hand, in the overwhelming um, tsunami of iffiness that is Leontes, Camillo's iffiness is just going to get lost. Um, it's going to be as indistinct as water is in water. Yeah? Wouldn't one also argue that um, his betrayal of Polixenes shows he's a true subject to, if not Leontes, yeah, he's a true subject of Sicilia, even if not to Leontes himself. He wants to go back to where he was born. And he shares with Antigonus, who, gosh, might be played by the same actor, an idea that your homeland matters. That is, Antigonus thinks Perdita should be here in Bohemia because that's the breast of her father's land. Um, in the same way, Camillo wants to go back home before he dies. Um, so, look, if you want to... if if you um, think that, that from Camillo's point of view, um, the play isn't taking enough pains to tell the truth about him, I think that's true. Um, if you want to make an argument about Camillo and you're looking for a paper topic, um, this is a place to disagree with me. Um, but I think that there's, what the oracle is saying is so overwhelming, and in particular, what's over, what we are getting is Hermione is chaste. That's the take home from what the oracle is saying, except that we are so aware of that that we don't notice the terrible thing that the oracle says at the end, which is Mamilius will die. The king will not have an heir except for Perdita if she's found. So the loophole is the if, and that's what we're going to hold on to um, for the next few scenes. Um, but the death of Mamilius is announced here as well. And then what happens is, and again, I think this is psychologically really interesting. No one notices it so that even Hermione says, praised, let the oracle be praised. And we in the audience don't notice it either. That is, there's so much information here that we're still catching up with everything the oracle says. Um, and we only really notice it a few lines later when this is mere falsehood, says Leontes. And of course, this is like um, the gods defend her. As soon as, because what he's essentially saying is mere falsehood is that Mamilius will die. Psychologically, it may be at just that moment that that last bit comes to us, especially since Leontes has done the thing which he shouldn't have done, which is said the oracle is wrong. That feels like it's what causes Mamilius' death. Leontes' rejection even of the oracle of God. But even if he accepted the oracle, Mamilius would die. That's what the oracle says. Now, think about what that does to Leontes. If he is a quarter of a step ahead of us, and here's the death of Mamilius before anyone else does, including us, of course he's going to reject the oracle. That's the last thing he wants to hear, is that Mamilius is dead. 
Mamilius is the one person he loves. Now, remember when we were talking about King Lear, I talked about Nahum Tate's version of Lear, which ends happily and which doesn't have the fool in it. In a sense, that's what we're getting here. If Mamilius is like the fool, and he is, otherworldly like the fool, um, unimpressed by um, everyday desires like the fool, spooky and eerie like the fool, for this play to end happily, strangely enough, he does have to die. How could this play end happily 16 years later if Mamilius lived? Would he and his sister be teasing each other? Would he be um, now a 23-year-old guy who'd lost all that weird otherworldliness of his childhood? There's stories about that. There's stories about um, the, the, um, the strange and beautiful and otherworldly child growing up into a normal person. It's a story of everyone's life, life in fact. Um, don't go to high school reunions just for that reason. Um, you know those eerie people in high school? they're not going to be eerie in 20 years, and that's not going to be a happy fact for you. Um, but Mamilius dies, and it's as though that's the fool being taken out of King Lear early. His eeriness remains, but he dies, but that's not what Leontes wants. And so he does reject the oracle, not only because he's a tyrant, but there's also the beginning of a good reason, which is, oh no, Mamilius dies. Like God, the gods defend Cordelia, his rejecting that claim is going to be its immediate, is going to provoke and elicit its immediate refutation. My lord, the king, the king, what is the business? Oh, sir, I shall be hated to report it. The prince, your son, with mere conceit and fear of the queen's speed, is gone. How gone? is dead, just like that. Now notice that he, that Mamilius died not after Leontes had rejected the oracle, but before. That is to say, he doesn't cause, at this point, he does earlier, but, he does, but his rejection of the oracle is not the cause of Mamilius' death. But it still feels that way to us. So what Shakespeare is doing, part of the psychological discovery that he's made is it takes a few seconds to, um, to absorb information, especially when you're getting a lot of it and especially when that information is emotionally highly contradictory. Um, unexpected good news overwhelms the bad news that follows it immediately because you're still in the glow of the good news. Um, so that is something that he... Um, that he sees right away. And he also sees right away that we're going to blame Leontes for something that at this point he didn't do. That is that his rejection of the oracle is the last straw, even though it's not the last straw. Even though his rejection of the oracle has no place in the plot, does nothing to the plot. Had he accepted the oracle, it would have been the same plot because that's the oracle's prediction. If he had said, if he had replied instead, the king shall live without an heir, if that which is lost be not found, if he'd said, without an heir, Mamilius, enter someone, Mamilius is dead. Same story, Hermione falls down dead, everything goes the same way. But Shakespeare wants us to think that the last straw and what sets all the dominoes falling now is something which emotionally does have that effect, but strictly causally does not. 
And that's, again, just notice Shakespeare's technique there, that he knows how much of storytelling is emotions leading reasonably to other emotions, how much of storytelling is the development of one emotional moment into the next emotional moment, which feels like one thing is causing something else to happen when, in fact, it isn't. So Hermione dies, and then, um, or sorry, Mamilius dies, and then Leontes has the great, I would call it, Antonine moment. Apollo's angry, and the heavens themselves do strike at my injustice. That is the switch from it's all a lie to Apollo's angry, and the heavens themselves do strike at my injustice is a kind of um, Shakespeare doing, making the same gesture that he has Antony make in Since Cleopatra Died, I Have Lived in Such Dishonor That the Gods Detest My Baseness. That is, everything changes 180 degrees immediately. And the change is so total that there's no registration of the change. Um, it's simply, he's a different person from one second to the next. Again, in Shakespeare, it turns out Cleopatra isn't dead. Mamilius is. But on the other end, Hermione isn't. Um, so it's almost as though Shakespeare, at some level in his mind, I don't think Shakespeare is thinking, oh yes, Antony and Cleopatra, let's see what I can do now with Antony and Cleopatra, but somehow this scene of life being changed from one instant to the next, and the person whose life we're following registering that change instantaneously, and then the possibility of unexpected recovery given the instantaneity of that change, that somehow the instantaneous change here on Leontes' part, like the instantaneous change on Antony's part, is rewarded eventually by the fact that someone who we thought was dead is not dead. Hermione isn't dead. Cleopatra isn't dead. Um, somehow, that's a scene that on some very deep level must be on Shakespeare's mind. So this is in no way an allusion to Antony and Cleopatra. It's in no way a, okay, you guys have seen Antony and Cleopatra, let me show you a different way of doing this. Not at all. I think, again, we're going very deep into stuff that Shakespeare was thinking really hard about, um, that sudden change. Um, the change that where did you die is trying to stave off for a moment. We're, but when where turns to since, since um, the heavens themselves do strike at my injustice, um, that sudden and complete acceptance of the truth. Okay, let's go to the amazing last scene of this play, Act 5, Scene 3, um, which is page 2958 of the Norton. Um, and alas, we have to rush through it a little bit, but you have section on Tuesday. Um, so that's a possible scene to, to talk more about. Um, or not. But what we get is Shakespeare doing sort of what he's done in Antony and Cleopatra, which is he's refused the reunion scene. That is, the jeopardy at the end of the play is it's 16 years later, um, it's 16 years later. Hermione is still dead. Any last hope we might have that Hermione is alive? No way. 
Um, in an earlier play, which tells kind of the same story, Much Ado About Nothing, um, the young man um, wrongly accuses his fiancée of cheating on him. Uh, she seems to drop dead. He feels terrible about it for 24 hours or so. Um, he says, what can I do? They say, well, you'll have to marry her cousin. She's going to come in a veil. Marry her. Um, that'll be your penance. Um, so he marries this veiled woman, and the veil is lifted, and guess who she turns out to be? So after 24 hours of penance, that's enough in Much Ado About Nothing. Um, now, 16 years after Much Ado About Nothing, it takes 16 years, and Hermione is still dead. So there's no way that anyone can be harboring a hope that she's alive. When people turn out not to be dead, they turn out not to be dead pretty fast. Um, the fact that they're dead is so awful that you relieve people of that anxiety quickly. One reason you do is because if it takes an hour and a half to say that a character you thought was dead isn't, an hour and a half later, the audience is emotionally in a totally different place. We've seen place. Sorry. Oh, homie. Um, we've seen, the audience is in a totally different place. We've seen... Um, Atelicus, we've seen Perdita, we've seen Florizel, we've seen the, the shearing, we've seen the flowers, we've seen all that stuff. We're in much better moods. This death happened an hour and a half ago. It's sad, sure, but it was 16 years ago and an hour and a half ago, and Hermione's no longer on our minds. What's on our minds is story number two, the spring story, the story of Perdita and Florizel and will they get together. And story number two, oh, good, Shakespeare has a really good way of getting them together. Leontes is going to say, okay, yes, um, I think you guys should get married. Then at some point he's going to recognize Perdita. Um, Polixenes is going to be happy. There's going to be a wonderful reunion scene. It'll all be great. The stuff that happened 16 years ago, it's sad, but it was 16 years ago. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, was, it was back in the first Bush um, um, administration. Um, it's just not that big a deal. Um, it's ancient history. And um, then, what does Shakespeare not give us? That reunion scene. We thought we were going to get this great, oh, it was you, oh, it was you, oh, I'm so happy, oh, that's wonderful, oh, look how happy they all are, oh, isn't that great? And instead, we just get it reported. Um, and, oh, they were so happy, they hugged each other, it was all good, just the way Aunt and Cleopatra's reunion is reported um, in, to Caesar um, and by Caesar in Antony and Cleopatra. So what are we waiting for? Well, Shakespeare does what he does, which is he has the scene you weren't expecting, that he's used all his power to prevent you from expecting, which is the existence and life of Hermione. And by now, also, we're not expecting that scene because comedies are about young people getting married. And we're not talking about young people anymore. So now we're going to go see this statue. Um, and Leontes says to Polina, oh, grave and good Polina, the great comfort that I've had of thee, Act 5, Scene 3. And if you're clever, what you're thinking is, oh, they've become such good friends over, these, over the years. Now they are going to get married. They're going to have a melancholy late marriage, but they understand each other. Um, and so there's going to be a marriage of friendship as well as the marriage of passion between Florizel and Perdita. There's going to be the marriage of friendship between Paulina and Leontes. After all, who else is there? 
he's a widower, she's a widow. Um, and look what he says. Oh, grave and good Paulina, the great comfort that I've had of thee. And then Paulina, for the first time, is saying nice things to him. What, sovereign sir, I did not well? I meant well. All my services you have paid home, but that you vouchsafe with your crowned brother and these young contracted heirs of your kingdoms my poor house to visit. It is a surplus of your grace which never my life may last to answer. So suddenly um, she's treating him and cueing us to treat him as a good, good is the wrong word, but as a good person. Um, again, this is, you should now notice that he is much chastened and very old when we see him again, when we see Florizel and Perdita come to him, and when we see him now. He is no longer the rash, impetuous fool that he was when we last saw him. He's broken, and we realize that, every, that all the time we've been watching, he's been being broken. He's a broken man now. And Leontes says, oh, Polina, we honor you with trouble. But we came to see the statue of our queen. And now we know what this last scene is about. Um, and Polina at line 17, prepare to see the life as lively mocked, there's that word again, as ever still sleep mocked death. Behold and say, tis well. Then a perhaps unfortunate stage direction. She draws a curtain and reveals the figure of Hermione standing like a statue. Again, I think it should, what I would do if you needed a stage direction there is she draws a curtain and reveals the figure of Hermione. Um, why not just stop there? Because we don't know. Then she has the great line, I like your silence. Almost as though Shakespeare is saying what he likes about this scene. I like your silence. It the more shows off your wonder. But yet speak. There we go again, speak. First you, my liege, comes it not something near. Now, if you're watching this on stage, of course what you're doing is looking really closely at the statue because of course you know that it's Hermione standing there. But what you want to know is how well is this actor impersonating a statue? That is the first question we're going to have on stage is like the Harvard Square question. Um, how good a plaster um, imitation is that person with the coffee can in front of herself? You know those people at Harvard Square who stand like statues until you give them money and then they come and kiss you or, or shake your hand or whatever. Um, so that's what any audience, again, Shakespeare knows his audience. You all do this, right? Someone dies on stage if you're watching a play. Oh my God, I'm dead. <laughs> um, and then the scene goes on for another, another three or four minutes. You're just riveted on whether they're breathing or not. <laughs> uh, and Shakespeare knows that you are, that the corpses on stage are breathing. And um, there's a little competition now between the audience, which wants to catch them at it, and the actors who are really trying to lie still. And you know, what do really good actors do? They lie in really uncomfortable poses. Um, but that's also distracting. Um, so Shakespeare, that's a problem with death scenes on stage. Here it's a solution. Shakespeare wants you watching her and thinking, huh, I think she's breathing. Um, she's not doing such, or he, the boy, isn't doing such a good job as a statue. But then every time you think that, the characters on stage are saying it. 
Um, same thing, by the way, he does in Romeo and Juliet, which is Juliet is lying supposedly dead, and Romeo says, boy, she doesn't look dead. <laughs> which if only he had taken seriously, um, much tragedy might have been avoided. Um, he says, she doesn't look dead. Death must be showing her a lot of love, otherwise she would look dead, or I'd better die quickly to, prevent, to step between her and death. Um, but the same thing is going on here. Her natural posture, well, yeah, because it is her. Chide me, dear stone, that I may say, indeed, thou art Hermione, or rather, thou art she and thy not chiding. For she was as tender as infancy and grace. There's that word again. But yet, Paulina, Hermione was not so much wrinkled, nothing so aged as this seems. So now we don't know quite what to think. Because, of course, the actor hasn't gotten wrinkled in the two hours since we last saw him. Um, which means that the very the makeup here, the thing that, it may, that is not part of the human person that we're looking at, is what's starting to hint to us that it is a human person all the way through. The artifice and the reality are really interestingly um, being made to stand for what they aren't. Um, that is, we say, oh, that's a real person pretending to be a statue. But those aren't real wrinkles on the real person. Those are theatrical wrinkles. Um, Polixenes agrees, oh, not by much. Um, and Paulinus says, so much the more our carver's excellence, which let's go by some 16 years and makes her as she lived now. So we all know who that carver is, not George Washington, but William Shakespeare Carver. Um, he's the one who now brings her back to life as though she's still alive 16 years later. Um, as she lived now, and Leontes corrects her, as now she might have done so much to my good comfort as it is now piercing to my soul. If she were alive, it would be comfort not piercing to my soul. Oh, thus she stood, even with such life of majesty, warm life, as now it coldly stands. When first I wooed her, I am ashamed. Does not the stone rebuke me for being more stone than it? Now, remember the end of King Lear. Lear is around the dead Cordelia, and he doesn't know whether she's alive or not. And he takes the mirror um, and says, if, if her breath mists the stone, then she lives. But everyone is around watching this. They don't know what to do. They're all watching Lear. And then Lear turns to them in fury and says, oh, you are men of stone. And what he wants and what we're getting here is the stone dead person to come to life, even at the expense of the living turning to stone. And here we're getting it because First, Leonti says, she's rebuking me as though I'm more stone than her. And then he says, no one will move. Everyone will stand absolutely still to see this miracle of her coming to life. So that impossible thing, what makes King Lear a tragedy, the impossibility of the living being able to give any of their life to the dead and to bring the dead Back. That's tragedy, that the living, no matter how sad and emotional and passionate and needy and wanting they are, cannot bring the dead back to life. Here they can. That's the magic here. A magic, says Paulina, lawful as eating. They don't stir, but she stirs. Those are the words to look at. Not a foot shall stir. Look, she's stirring. And then what causes her to speak? 
our Perdita is found, says Paulina to her. Awake, good madam, our Perdita is found. And it's that, excuse me, turn good lady, just so you know, page 2961, line 120. Please you to interpose, fair maiden, kneel and pray your mother's blessing, and then to Hermione, turn good lady, our Perdita is found. The amazing thing here, just so you know how amazing this is and how amazing Shakespeare is and why it's worth having been born because you get to read Shakespeare. Um, the amazing thing here is Paulina has a surprise for Hermione. Hermione didn't know that Perdita had been found. This is not only the scene of surprise for us and for Leontes and for Polixenes and for everyone else, but there's a gift to Hermione too. And Hermione also gets something in this last scene. Yeah. Because they, they didn't find 